and then eventually we will start to read and then we'll write. So the reading and writing is very much the end of the process of language acquisition. And the, the theory behind music learning theory is that why should music be any different? And in actual fact, that is the premise of many of these sound before symbol approaches, which is let's get the sound into students' heads. Let's have them listening. Let's have them audiating, which is to kind of to hear music in their heads without music actually going on. Let's get them doing some of these activities we've been talking about with regard to singing and rhythm and tapping and, and chanting and reciting, all these things. Let's get that happening before we move to the reading phase, because that is a much more natural way that people can pick up music uh, in a much more structured way. Hello and welcome to the Heart of the Piano podcast where we are as always exploring the world of piano and oh my god um, have an absolute legend of educational podcasting on the channel today Tim Topham um, so anyone who has listened to podcasts on piano education in the last um, five years uh, you are going to know who Tim Topham is so hi Tim how are you doing? I'm great, Bob. Lovely to be on your show. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, yeah, no, no worries. So for people who don't know who you are, can you uh, give like a quick elevator pitch, as it were, of, of what you do? Sure. Well, I uh, am a, an ex-classroom teacher. I am a piano teacher and I started topmusic.co. I actually started blogging in 2010 and then uh, built over time uh, to my podcast, which you mentioned. Thank you very much. That started in 2015 and then a course and then eventually a membership called Top Music Pro. So I now spend my time helping music teachers around the world to teach better. That's what I tell people who don't know what I do. And that seems to be the clearest uh, understanding way of uh, helping people understand what I do. Mm. And I've actually personally had a subscription to Top Music Pro, I think for a couple of years, but it's like an unused gym membership. So I've got... <laughs> we'll have to I've... fix that, Bob, won't we? <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. I, I need to get back into the community. But but basically, that's how you know important um, Tim is for everyone who's listening, that I have a membership to, to his website. And, and yeah, Tim is just a complete legend and uh, very, very prolific in the um, podcasting world. So... You're here with a special purpose today, aren't you? Uh, yes, I am. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm here with a purpose of, of helping your audience, of course. Uh, but one of the things that I'm really passionate about is something that I have uh, just written a book about, which is delaying reading for beginner piano students, which mm. is uh, something I've been talking about for many, many years. And I've created courses about, I've created resources on i've spoken at conferences about it and now i finally put all those thoughts into a, a book hmm. and your book is called it's called no book beginners yes and uh, i've read this uh, and like like i like i explained to tim uh, for people who are listening uh, i meant to read this ages ago and i just kept um, procrastinating and putting it off because it's like oh my god i've got to sit down and read this book and then when i finally did sit down and read it i i read it in about one hour flat because uh, i'm a quite a fast reader and i was like oh oh wow i mean it's 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 not that it's insubstantial it but but it's written very very concisely and it covers a lot of stuff in a very efficient way 
and it's really easy and and enjoyable to read. So um, for people, um, <laughs> for, for people who like who like me, might be I don't have time to read another book. Um, th this is definitely worth it, and it's uh, I found this to be a a really really interesting book and a very much needed book i think so uh um yeah tim do, do you want to um sell it to us <laughs> <laughs> well look I, I wanted to make uh something that was readable in a short amount of time i think an hour would be a record i would probably give it two or three hours for most most people <laughs> particularly if you want to start trying to implement some of the ideas in it which of course uh i would um highly recommend but the the goal was to create something of about 30,000 words, which is about 100 and something pages, 120 pages maximum, that's really um, digestible and practical. I just didn't want to, you know, blab on about stuff that is not really relevant. And, and I've really spent my career trying to be as succinct and relevant as possible. Uh, and all my blog posts and webinars and all those kinds of things are really designed to be as um effective for you and practical for you and your studio as possible so yeah the, the book really uh it's called no book beginners as i said and, and it's about delaying music teaching music reading to beginner piano students for the first anything up to 10 weeks or even more if you want to but at least for a first few weeks there is really nothing worse than a, an excited student coming into a piano lesson for the first time and having a teacher open a book point to middle C in the, <laughs> this big black and white boring page, point to middle C on the piano and say, that's middle C, let's play some middle Cs. It, it really is the worst way to do it. There are so many better ways and more exciting ways to approach a first lesson. Now, I imagine some of your readers, uh, sorry, listeners will probably have had that experience as a student. In fact, I think mine probably was that. I went through John Thompson, I still remember mm. my teacher taking me through. And look, I've turned out okay, but that was because my teacher was very open to teaching me all sorts of fun and exciting things during my early years. Um, but really what my point is, is that not only is not teaching reading more fun at the start for you and the student, it actually gives you the opportunity to develop musicality skills that so often are missing and we sort of throw our hands up and go, why can't our students do oral tests for their exams. Well, the reason often is because we never did any singing or clapping or playbacks or any any of those musical skills in those first lessons. We went straight to reading. Mm. So my whole thesis of the book is let's delay reading for a few weeks. I'm not sort of suggesting a year or anything, just a few weeks and let's work through, and this is what the book explains in detailed lesson plans, Here's what you can do instead of jumping into reading. Here are some activities. Here are some songs to sing. Here are some chants to do. Here are some uh, humming that you can do. Here's some really, uh, the book is full of improvisation activities. I mean, what we really want for these beginners is for them to be creative, imaginative, and curious. And they're the three key things that Ooh. I try and provide activities for. Because if we get those three things right, we're off say, to the say, best Say start. the three things again, Tim. Uh, imagination, yeah, creativity, yeah, and curiosity. We yes. want them to go. Oh, why does that sound good? Or what is what is inside this piano? Or like, how do I make that sound? Or you know, those kinds of things. We want them to always be curious about music because that's mm. how they'll ultimately deepen their understanding as they move into the intermediate years. 
we want them to go, well, why do I like this? Or why does that chord progression sound like that? Oh, okay. And it's through making those connections that students build a much deeper understanding of music than they can get through just surface reading and performance and interpretation. I call those the tip of the iceberg uh, mm. skills. We want to go much deeper. We want that. We want to have the whole iceberg when we teach. <laughs> and especially, I think, in the contemporary world that we live in, where I think we realise that, that we increasingly want to equip students with the ability to play pop music and rock music. And uh, um, even if they are sort of very, very interested in classical and we want to build, um, uh, we happen to be teachers who teach classical, it's, it's awful to just have students who aren't equipped with those other skills. Mm. And they're all very teachable. All, all of these, uh, you know, the, the, the basic skills of chords and harmony should be taught right from the beginning. In actual fact, within the first few weeks of this, we talk about tonic and dominant and try and get students listening to a home, a sense of home, a home key. Hmm. Uh, we get them clapping rhythms and singing back notes that they play on the piano, uh, playing notes and then trying to find them on the piano. So trying to build this ability to play by ear. Because as you say, we want to create holistic, well-rounded, all-rounder musicians uh, just like an all-rounder cricketer, all-rounder musicians. We want them to be able to jam with their mates, play in an orchestra if they want to uh, create music, write down music eventually. Yes, read music, perform music, perform a whole lot of different music, play pop songs, all of these things. Mm. But reading only gets you... Teaching reading of performance literature only gets you so far. Now, I should say, Bob, too, I'm, I'm not against method books. Method books are absolutely brilliant. They are the best way to teach a student to read music Bar none. Hmm. They are fantastic. All I'm suggesting is let's just not do it right <laughs> right at the start. <laughs> and the same goes for classical repertoire. I love playing classical repertoire. I love teaching classical repertoire. Hmm. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I just think there's a balance that we need to strike. And there's also that balance that we need to walk between what students want to learn and what we know that they need to learn in order to become well-rounded musicians. And that's a conversation we can have as well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, uh, you know, I do find it interesting that, that when you look at the the classical pianists at the highest, highest levels, the, the highest level concert pianists, they're generally pretty good improvisers. They, they might not do it a lot, but when you hang out with them and you you you, you see they, they do improvise, but but it's just weird that all the people like at the, um, the intermediate levels think that none of that stuff is involved in high level classical piano playing. Mm. And I think it's because we don't, really give those people opportunities to improvise in a concert sense. We mm. we want or expect them to play really tough Rachmaninoff and list music works. Mm. We don't sort of go to hear them uh, improvise or play tunes that they like the sound of because that's not the sort of high level of classical performance that we've become used to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I feel very, very fortunate that when I was, uh, I don't know, about 15, I, I was uh, bitten by the bug to play electric guitar and, you know, there, there was no internet. <laughs> had to work it all out myself, had to listen to records and, and it was painful in the beginning. But, but now I'm a, I'm a classical musician with a really good ear. <laughs> and, uh, yes. I, and I think yeah. that this is how everyone needs to be. So, you know, I'm, I'm very, very passionate about um, all the stuff that you talk about in your book. It's very, very unhealthy when people don't have a good ear, are not able to improvise, don't sort of understand harmony with their hands, if you know what I mean. Um, mm. So, uh, yeah, sorry, go on. I was just going to say, and 
I think YouTube is somewhat to blame here. Uh, I love YouTube and mm. I think it's something to encourage students with. But however, when I look back, as you just mentioned, you know, when you started playing guitar, you had to kind of teach yourself. There was, weren't tutorials about how to play Stairway to Heaven. You either had to work <laughs> it out by ear or have someone teach it to you. Yeah, yeah. I was of the vintage as well. Uh, I was a sort of 90s kid. And so I would have to, if I wanted to play something, I would record it from the radio onto tape and then mm. I'd play it back over and over and over and use my ears to be able to play it. And then I'd be able to play it at school or in front of my friends and they'd all go, wow, that's amazing. Now <laughs> that ability or that requirement to play by ear has been lost unless we uh, encourage our students to do it and help them do it and show them how to do it. Mm. It's not something that will come naturally or be something that students even think about doing because they can just go to YouTube and be taught how to, which keys to press down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny though, because like, um, if you look at guitar videos, they actually really, the, the tutorial videos show you, well, you play like this and, you know, you you have to use your ear a bit. It's not just completely spelt out, but the, the piano, I guess it is more of this sort of every key can, it, there's a danger of it just being a binary thing that you press it or you don't press it. Mm. Um, talk to us about your book and your your specific approach. Um, yeah, so the, the book, what I wanted in the book was not to, just give you a manual with lesson plans. Although you do, there are at least five weeks worth of, of, of lesson plan activities that you can do for students. Because what I, what I did realize when uh, I started creating resources for teachers was that I was pretty happy because I, I hadn't been conservatory trained and I hadn't gone through lots of these usual channels. I've done a lot of improvising and accompanying and playing in bands and all those kinds of things. I came to... Uh, trying these creative activities pretty confidently. Uh, well, no, then again, I guess in some ways I did I did struggle when I first tried this approach with students because uh, I wanted to get it right. But I guess what I'm saying is mm. I realized that teach, most teachers need uh, suggestions and clear step-by-step -step sort of plans to feel comfortable trying something that's a little bit revolutionary like this, like I'm going to take mm. away your method book for a few weeks. <laughs> what on earth am I going to do? So I wanted to really spell out step-by-step step what, what you can do um, with students. But as well as that, I really wanted to give teachers a bit of the background and the history to, to why method books are so prevalent. Where did they kind of come? I wanted to do this research myself because mm. I knew well that going back, let's go back to the mid 1700s in the Baroque era, um, musicians were paid to improvise. They were, they, there mm -hmm. really weren't jobs for people to just be performers. They were creators. Mm -hmm. That's why we have Handel's fireworks music and the water music. And I mean, all of these court musicians in Bach included were creating music for events. Mm. They were all improvising and composing and over time, that changed and I really wanted to work out, you know, what did happen there? Why did we go from the creator paradigm to a performer paradigm mm -hmm. where musicians are akin to Shakespearean actors reciting other people's works? So I wanted to dig into that uh, a little bit to give people the background and say that, you know, this isn't, what I'm suggesting isn't actually that revolutionary if we look back to how music has been taught in the past and certainly how music has been taught forever in, in the history of, 
of, of humans. Mm. We've done it very much by ear and by teaching each other and, and, and wrote and song and things like that. So I wanted to give that foundation. And then mm. I wanted to talk more about uh, and answer some questions that I know will come up like, you know, what if, what if I'm not creative? Because I have a teacher saying that kind of thing to me all the time. What if, you know, and I don't do, really feel do, very creative. Does, does that mean that they don't improvise? It means that they, well, yes. And it also <laughs> means that they don't uh, feel like they can get off the page. Mm. They don't know what to do or they don't have the confidence to do that. And I've mm. really spent the last 10 years supporting teachers to feel more confident getting off the page uh, with all the resources, not just notebook mm. beginners too. And by the way, for people who are listening, um, Tim's podcast is just an absolute who's who of anyone <laughs> remotely interested in teaching creatively in the way that, that is the opposite of what you're talking about, which is just going through method books. But but anyone who's who's vaguely interesting and well-known uh, to do with teaching creatively, this is absolutely, you're a legend for having this podcast where everyone is on this podcast. So everyone oh, needs to you. go listen to, to Tim's podcast. <laughs> it's been going for a while. <laughs> I think yeah, 2015 of, was when uh, I started. How many episodes have you got up now? I have just recorded, in fact, I've got to do some today we're up to episode 354 wow that's crazy i mean i think i remember being listening to episodes one two three four so i've been listening for some time <laughs> oh wow you have indeed <laughs> i think that you know i'm thinking about all the things that you were saying and um cds and recordings and i think this obviously has a lot to answer for that that people now it's like well the music is just goes like this because there are recordings and this is just how it goes which uh, I think leaves more of a culture where people are afraid to do something different. I, I don't know. What do you think of that? Yes. The, the nature of classical performance is, it's a funny one, Bob, isn't mm -hmm. it? Because we, we know that, I mean, if you go to a classical recital pretty much anywhere in the world, the audience will tend to be of a certain age. <laughs> There's not a lot of young blood coming in wanting uh, to watch those kinds of concerts. But the alternative, which is sort of mixing things up and re uh, you know, remixing or taking classical music and putting it with dance music and things like that, is pretty rare as well. Uh, so I've, I've seen, in fact, there's been a few concerts recently. Uh, it's come up in my various social media feeds at Royal Albert Hall with mm. an orchestra playing dance music and laser lights and all this kind of stuff. So they're actually taking electronic dance music and putting it to an orchestra and it sounds epic and they were packed out and everyone was loving it. Like that is a cool idea. What a great way to try and pitch something that's going to make sense to a younger audience. Uh, I, yeah. I, I'm really not <laughs> sure. I'm not sure where the whole watching one person perform a solo recital on stage. I don't know where that's going to go. I have enjoyed, and again, I should say, I have enjoyed solo, watching solo recitals in the past, 
but mm. I don't do it very often and I don't think many people do. Really? So wow. I'm not really sure. Maybe this is maybe in Australia. I'm not sure. What's what's it like over there for you? Well, I mean, I think like you were describing, it's really only old people who go to um, uh, classical concerts, unless the people performing are really young. But but yes, yeah, it's, mm. it's in a terrible state. But, but what I gather is there's some parts of Eastern Europe and there's certainly China where that's not quite so true. But but yeah, in the, in the Western world, mostly it's it's in a pretty bad state. Mm. And more reason for us to give our students as wide an experience at their instrument as possible so mm. that they can have the opportunity to take music in a different direction if they want to. Um, I, I think that, that you came across my podcast by listening to my review of the new Trinity syllabus, uh, which was, yes. I think, what piqued your interest because I was moaning, I think, about how <laughs> Trinity uh, Trinity seems to have this new mission in their latest syllabus to almost kind of make it purely optional to have classical music and to introduce loads of contemporary music, pop music, rock music. But I really deeply disagree with the way in which they're doing it, which is so led by the... The written notes and this is not how the world of pop uh, uh rock works uh, have you got thoughts about that uh interesting i well i mean how else would how else would they do you, you said the pop music is tied to the written notes Yes. There's no other way to do I mean, you could give someone a chord chart. Is that the kind of thing? Yes, yes. I mean, like, for example, yeah. the, you know, ABRSM do um, jazz grades to grade five. And uh, and there are other examination boards that do jazz to grade eight. But also there are um, there are uh, the examination boards that do keyboard. But I think, again, they don't really encourage a lot of improvisation. But, but in the same way that examination boards do let you do jazz grades with improvising, why can't there be rock and pop grades with improvising? rather than forcing everything to be to the, with the written note, which is just so not how that world works. Mm, yes, I, I, I do agree. <laughs> uh, the um, Interestingly, I was consultant editor for a series for the Australian Music Exam Boards uh, mm -hmm. in Australia and back in 2016-17. And one of the things that I wanted to add, uh, I, well, there was a number of changes I wanted to make. One of them was to add chord symbols above mm. the pop music. Mm. Um, that wasn't permitted. That was a step too far. And I see that <laughs> Trinity hasn't hasn't done that as well, obviously a step too oh. far. Uh, one thing that they did go with though, it was instead of the long performance notes at the start of the book or wherever, I just had a few dot points uh, at the bottom of each piece saying, here's some fun things you can do to pull this piece apart and make up stuff and get creative with it. And that yeah. was embraced. And and that teachers have fed back that that was a really helpful way to just dip their toe into the water of getting off the page a little bit with these pieces. I think the Trinity syllabus, I actually interviewed Francesca Crispus, oh, yeah, who right. works yeah, there yeah. Um, yes. just last week actually about it. Uh, because I think what they've done is, I like what they've done. Uh, I understand your point uh, about the fixation on written music, but I also know that for 90% of teachers at the moment, maybe more, that's what they're most comfortable with. So I can see why they would do mm. that. I do appreciate though, that they have created arrangements of pop songs 
right down to the initial grade, which is, and they sound pretty good. And they're quite pianistic, actually. Mm. It's not just sort of fifth banging away mixed. in the left hand. I think there's mixed opinions on that. I think most reviews, ah. most reviews would disagree with that, especially at the lowest levels. But I think, I think maybe that can be controversial. Yeah, well, I mean, there's only so much you can do as an arranger at those levels. I actually mm. think they've done a pretty good job. And I know that students will be pretty impressed that they can play some of those pieces at that level and have it sound... I mean, of course, there's going to be hits and misses, but I was playing through them and I'm actually like, you know what, this is actually not bad. So, mm. and, and you don't mm. normally see those pop arrangements at the very low levels. That's that's the, the thing that I thought was impressive, particularly grade one, yeah. there was like seven of them or something. Yeah. Um, How they'll really... date over time, I'm not sure. That's the only other concern I would mm. have. Did, did you check out the relatively recent ABRSM pop books as well? They uh, tried to do something similar. No, I haven't. I haven't. But I, mm. uh, but the other thing I was going to say about that is that, for example, in Australia, they the Australian Music Exam Board uses Rock School, which I yes. think is UK based. Is yeah, that yeah, right? yeah, yeah. We have yeah. a lot of Rock School. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that you know the exam boards have gone. Well, we don't need to do the chord symbols and all that kind of stuff because there is this other thing, Rock School, or maybe ABRSM's Pop. I'm not really sure. And Rock School does have all the chord charts, and they have keyboard parts and lyrics, and you know you can have a little band in there and things like that. So I think they they are covering. It's just not in the main books and i understand yeah, why yeah but, but rock school still doesn't have any improvising and you i don't i don't think you can really pull it around all that much um so i, I still think there's that that gap in the market there or, or the gap mm. in the education sector anyway but yeah i didn't yeah. know that rock school doesn't have a chance for people to improvise no 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 it's no, all very okay. much written out um right but, but what's nice about it is that yeah, very little of it is solo most of it has a backing track and i think that's, mm, that's yeah. that makes it much easier to have arrangements that work at the lower levels yes absolutely but yeah you know it's uh I, I feel myself potentially wanting to open up the can of worms. Let's do it. Um, uh, classical music. <laughs> uh, I, I, and, and, you know, talking about what we were talking about with Trinity, I think, you know, in many ways where, when I reviewed it, as you know, on the one hand, I'm very excited about it. I'm very enthusiastic about what they've included um, as the repertoire. And I'm all for expanding what people uh, are exposed to. And, and it's very exciting uh, what they're doing. But at the same time, as someone quite steeped in the classical tradition not not just classical because i am a rock pop jazz heavy metal electric guitarist as well so but as a <laughs> as also as uh, someone steeped in the classical music tradition i'm horrified that there are people taking the same qualification for like um pop uh, and rock arrangements as the people doing the quite intricate sort of high level classical stuff and i th i think you can't compare those two things and uh, and I also have feelings about uh, rock and pop uh, that they have commercial backing behind them, that there are not going to be a lack of people listening to that and exposed to that and liking it. Whereas I sort of feel that in a way, as a teacher, part of my role is to create you know i'm not to force it on anyone but if people are open to it to help create the classical audiences of tomorrow so that when all the old people die who are going to the concerts at the moment classical music doesn't die <laughs> so um I, I think it's a very very delicate balancing act and i do teach jazz and rock and pop to my students but at the same time i think it's also important personally 
that people who are receptive to it are exposed to classical and have the opportunity to learn it to a high level. And I think what, what Trinity are doing, I feel like it's setting a dangerous precedent of just allowing people to, to just bypass it too easily. I don't know, what, what do you think about these issues? Uh, so are you, you're talking about the way that students or sorry, or teachers in the new syllabus could pick if they wanted to just four pop songs and be examined on that if yes. they wanted to? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I was surprised that there wasn't the requirement to choose pieces from, from each era, which is what most of the exam boards do here and have always done everywhere, I think. Mm. So it is an interesting departure. Uh, I'm... I'm, yes, I see both sides of the story. I'm no, I don't know really. I don't have a very strong opinion on it because there's been plenty of students I've taught who I know that if I didn't guide, if I didn't just help them play the songs that they wanted to for a period of time, they would have given up. Yeah. If I had forced Bach upon them or Baroque music or Beethoven or something like that, they may not have stuck around. Yeah. But if I was able to find a collection of music or teach them pop songs or whatever it was that they really loved and then kept them and got them interested enough and built our relationship strong enough, I could then introduce that stuff later on. But if I had to do it right from the start, it probably wouldn't have ended so well. Oh, I've yeah, spoken yeah. to other teachers. Uh, I'm thinking of Forrest Kinney, um, who mm. is a great champion of creative music and who I quote in the book uh, in a number of places. Mm. He told me on a, on a podcast when I interviewed him that there was a 14-year-old, uh, I think it was a 14-year-old, who was obsessed by Beatles, the Beatles, for, for whatever reason, mm. which is a little bit unusual for a teenager these days. But mm -hmm. uh, all he wanted to do was play the Beatles. And Forrest just helped him play the Beatles and play more Beatles and just do it over and over. And, and that was all they studied for about a year and I said well wasn't you know isn't that a bit of a problem because he's not uh you know being exposed to all this other music and and Forrest said no 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 the fact is that he was loving it and he kept playing it and he was musical and I was eventually over the course of time able to introduce some other styles but it took a bit of time and I was happy to take that time and that's mm. how I generally approach this as well uh some students will be more than happy to play just about anything if it sounds cool and a good teacher can make just about anything from any era sound good if they know their student well enough. Uh, other other students are really, you know, they come to you just playing video game music and they've taught mm -hmm. themselves a hundred YouTube tutorials on it and their technique's awful and all that kind of stuff. So help them with that. Focus on it. I, I talk a, in the book as well about autonomy and we have uh, one yeah. of our main pillars of top music is, is a student-centered approach, making sure that the student has agency and choice in what they do and they're learning things that they want is really important, but mm. it doesn't have to stay that way all the time. Mm. And, and it shouldn't, as, as you say, it should be balanced. Uh, so <laughs> I'm a little bit torn, I guess, Bob, you're not going to yeah, get yeah, a yeah. definitive uh, re response from me on this one, I'm afraid. No, I, I, I completely agree with you. And, and uh, actually, you know, there's lots of my students who, who have never and will never go anywhere near classical music. And that's absolutely fine. You know, I'm thinking, you know, similar to what you were saying, I had one um, young teenage lad who only wanted to play cocktail jazz. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's, <laughs> that's what you want to do. That's absolutely fine. <laughs> Very unusual. Well, make some good money fine. when he's older. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, you know, I, I, but, you know, I just think it's interesting looking at uh, all of these issues. So in, in your book, 
you lay out these beautiful lesson plans that I think are uh, going to be so, so useful. And, and by the way, it's probably worth saying that um, you really intend them for a specific age group as well. Uh, mm. uh, what's the age group? Yeah, so it's really 6 to 11 or 12-year-olds this has been designed for. Uh, we have had student uh, teachers use elements of this for, for teenagers and adults. It just has to be somewhat reframed as anyone listening who's taught an adult before, particularly to read will know. Mm -hmm. You kind of have to sometimes go, okay, this is going to sound a little bit silly, but we're going to play this little game or whatever. And if you frame it the right way, adults can actually do the the, the kids in inverted commas games. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, mainly for six to 11 year olds. And we actually have... Uh, this book originated out of a full course, 10 module video online course of me actually at the piano teaching this stuff. Oh. Uh, and once I'd released this, we had a lot of people saying, oh, can you do, can you do something like this for preschoolers? I've got lots of five-year-olds and four-year-olds. What can I do? I love this approach for my older ones. And so we commissioned um, Nicola Canton, who you may know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Irish teacher. And she created the same concept, but for uh, younger, even younger students. So we've also got a preschool notebook beginners course to yeah. uh, take students through if, if they're young or teach teachers through running this style of thing with younger students. And that wasn't a part of teaching that I was strong at. So I wanted an expert. She's an absolute expert in that age group and games. So you can imagine it was just full of fun and games. Mm -hmm. So yes, um, that and that age group tends to be, sorry, the six to sort of 11 tends to be the age most students will start learning piano. Yeah. So I wanted to create something that does cover that age group. And that's, that's where I, I tested it as well. My first student was seven who I tested this approach with after... A good, well, many years of thinking about it and then a good six months of putting together the first iteration of No Book Beginners. I then tested it with uh, Josh, who I mentioned in the book, this um, seven-year-old, and he just loved it. And, and the thing that really made the impact for me was that over time, you could see that the groundwork we'd laid with the musicality theory listing skills was starting to pay off because he, you could tell he, he was more comfortable singing. I'm really passionate about singing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, singing is so often ignored in piano lessons and really, and it's really hard to add it later on for trying to get a 14-year-old to sing. Mm -hmm. Anyone who's taken kids through an exam audio <laughs> the oral test will know how hard that is if you've never done it before and, it, mm. and what of course it's going to be hard because if you haven't done it regularly it's really awkward so one of the big things is getting kids singing right from the start humming singing chanting yeah and so that was uh something that i wanted to try with with this student josh and i've subsequently i mean we've had more than a thousand teachers use this program with multiple students now and the skills they're uh, showing later in later years has just really made teachers uh, be able to i don't know feel like they've laid that groundwork early on and they don't have to try so hard later trying to reskill them in just the basics of feeling the difference between three, four and four, four, simple things like that. Let's get it right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. that's what I really wanted to focus on in these lesson plans. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for mentioning yeah. them. I really literally specify 
exactly what to say, <laughs> yes. what to do, what you need. Here's the uh, here's how to sit at the piano. Here's how I teach the basic technique. Here's the improvising you're going to do. This is where to find the backing tracks. You're going to do an animal improv. You're going to play this game. Bang, 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 bang. All laid out for you, uh, so that teachers can just literally step through it. Yeah, you know, it really resonated when I was reading the book, and yeah, you you so you mentioned quite a few times um, the um, the problem that that you have when you take when you take on other people's students or you you do um sort of uh what's the word i'm looking for you're you're doing appraisals of them. um no yeah yeah or, oh or, yeah or, or or diagnostic doing, of yeah students, that, yeah yes. that, that kind of thing or, or they're doing mm. exams or whatever and and you're saying the really common thing are, are sort of rhythmic issues where they suddenly add beats or take away beats mm. and uh, mm. and and yeah you know th- this is such a, a prevalent problem i think that that like you're saying can easily be remedied with just having a better ear um but but yeah coming back to your book i think it's it's very very obvious reading your book and reading your lesson plans that this really is based on hard experience and what works it that that mm. really comes across and uh, i haven't had a chance to look at the website but but you do mention like the, the website a lot that there are examples there's backing tracks there's all that kind of stuff so so it's very very rich on resources and uh but mm. um and it's also very obvious that uh i, I think that, that you come from a background of school teaching as well and all that kind of stuff mm. which, which in a good way i hope yeah 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 in a good way because <laughs> because you you need um you have to be trained in it in a way that um piano teachers very often aren't <laughs> and so right. you you have that hard pedagogical background that goes into the way that, that you've structured this book and so um i think that um it's so it's going to be so useful for teachers particularly teaching this age group to um be able to see what really good teaching habits uh, are from your lesson plans yeah thanks and i appreciate bob because it has taken a lot of work to structure these and test mm. them and get and get them right and it, and it has taken my 20 years of school teaching and the training I've done I think to mm. be able to structure it so I do appreciate it because yeah it 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 is really well thought out and planned and it's sequential as well so the the other question I sometimes get asked about it is you know can I just jump in at any week the answer really is no you because the way I've structured it, each lesson builds on the previous one. And one of the other challenges I think that teachers have if they go off book, off page, is what do the students do at home if they've got no book and the next, you know, the next piece to turn to? Uh, and so I was quite focused on setting clear practice, or I actually suggest teachers call it play don't tell students <laughs> to practice at this stage just tell them to play the piano yeah, yeah. Uh, i give them play suggestions what should the student do uh during during the week if all they've sort of done during the lesson is sing and have fun and improvise so i give you those step-by-step suggestions and along with that as you mentioned comes the companion website where you can get backing tracks uh to share with parents so that they can with their child keep on doing some of these improvisations along to a backing track because improvising as we mentioned earlier so much more fun when you have a backing track and we also mm. have we have different so there's a number of different improvisations different styles we have fully orchestrated backing tracks that i got an audio engineer to put together for us so there's wow, lots of wow. lots of different ways that you can approach this but you can 
also just do two parts of it. So you might just want to do lessons one, two, and three, and then start adding some reading in. And that's totally fine. It really is flexible. I don't call it a method for a reason. Mm -hmm, it's a framework mm -hmm. that you can use in your studio as you wish. And I encourage students and teachers to pull things apart and try them out. And the actual fact you might have read, there's a, there's a part of a chapter where I talk about some of the ideas that teachers have taken from this and then made their own and built even more into like storytelling exercises and creating actual pharaoh headdresses for this Egypt yes. uh, style of improvisation. So it really does spark creativity in teachers, even mm. those who by their own admission said, <laughs> I wasn't creative. Yeah, I, I really like that in your book that you were ex uh, that you were really emphasizing that um, there's nothing dogmatic about this and that people can mix and match what works for them. I really like that. Whereas mm. that, that is not the feeling that you get from most other stuff. But, uh, but <laughs> um, right. talking about teachers who, who feel that they are not creative, do you think it's a problem for teachers teaching, who, who want to be able to teach in, in this, uh, the format in your book, who don't improvise? What, what would you say to those teachers? I'd say grab the book and try it out because you're going to probably blow yourself away with just how easily you can make some cool sounds. Hmm. Uh, the fact is that improvisation, as as you know, I'm sure, is can be as simple as one or two notes um, given the yeah. right setup and the right uh, accompaniment. So the teacher can play an accompaniment, the student can improvise with one note. Uh, and I do suggest for teachers, if you haven't done this style of teaching before, then as you're reading through these lesson plans, go to the piano and try them out and put the backing track on and do the activity that I suggest you teach your student. I haven't yet had one teacher ever with any of my resources come back and say, I, you know, that was a failure. I still can't improvise because there's always <laughs> ways that you can dip your toe in the water. And pretty much any teacher that I've explored this stuff with, particularly when I've got them up at a live workshop and they've been really nervous and I've said, mm. hey, come to the piano, they have the biggest beaming smile on their face at the end of it when they realize <laughs> this isn't actually that terrifying. I can do this. Excellent, excellent. So um, obviously, um, like, um, uh, I don't know about in Australia, but, but here, one of the most popular method books, if, if you want to sort of put it that way, for people in that age bracket, which in a way tries to deal with a lot of the issues that you've mentioned by sort of actually teaching by rote from the beginning rather than forcing everyone to try and read right from the beginning is something like Piano Safari, which, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I really like Piano Safari. How would you kind of place your book al uh, alongside that kind of approach? Do, do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And I love Piano Safari. It's been my biggest recommended resource for teachers looking for alternate methods mm. since they came out with it in about 2013 or 15. Mm. And I first uh, interviewed them and, and learned about how they went about creating this method. And, and it was from interviewing and watching and video recording teachers from all around the world, the best, they basically went as part of their research and mm. watched the best big teachers of beginners do their thing in lessons. And they pulled together all of those threads and ideas and said, this is what we've seen work the best out of all the teachers that we've, we've uh, come across. And it really is. It is so well sequenced and it is so mm -hmm. mixed. So you don't have, it's not just reading, reading, reading. 
as you say, there's rote and there's impro- lots of improvising and there's fun pieces like I Love Coffee. I remember Josh actually, my student <laughs> who I mentioned, he played that at a recital uh, at a, an a school assembly and everyone loved it. It was hilarious. Mm-hmm. It was great fun. So they've got these pieces where students can have quick wins early on to give them that incentive to keep on going and to start getting that identity. Oh, yeah, I am a musician. So I'm really pro um, Piano Safari. Uh, and how does it work with something like Notebook Beginners? Well, as I said earlier, you could start, if you're using Piano Safari or any method, you could start doing that at really any stage after three or four weeks of Notebook Beginners. You could start implementing some of the ideas in a method book alongside the Notebook Beginner method. It just means that you wouldn't be able to do everything in, let's say, week five. You might just pick a couple of the activities and you would spend the rest of the time doing some of the reading activities from your method book. But it's a bit of a cheeky question, uh, I guess, but I'm guessing that you feel like there are some things that are missing from that that you want to add with with your, it's not a method, what do I call it? The framework. <laughs> your approach, framework, <laughs> yes. Yeah, you're adding things that, that might be missing from something like Piano Safari. Oh, look, I've learned over 20 years that you, it doesn't matter how good a method is, it'll never be perfect. There's always things that you're going to find are missing and everybody, and you can never please everybody. So I think uh, Julie and Katie have done an incredible job of sequencing and integrating and beginning that reading process. And I, I, yeah, I, I think that the positioning of no book beginners, the, the way it can work with any approach to reading I think means that it really is truly versatile. So I, I don't think it matters that it's not already part of somebody's method necessarily because you can use this in any context. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when you um, uh, approached me originally and uh, and I saw the idea for your book, I did instantly think, oh, sound before symbol. And then it was interesting because that was one of the first things that you actually raised in the introduction of your book. Um, mm. do, do you want to talk about that a little bit, the, the sound before symbol thing? Yes, absolutely. The The book really originated, well, the thing that sparked, I've always loved creativity and improvising and teaching that to students. But the thing that really sparked my pedagogical interest in this was a keynote given at a conference in America in 2015, uh, delivered by somebody else, actually, because the original keynote wasn't well. Uh, the keynote speaker who wrote the speech was Dr. Edwin Gordon, who some of your listeners may know from his music learning theory approach. And you can look that up uh, online. He's got a whole website. It's approach. It's an approach to music, teaching music that starts with or that mirrors language learning and language acquisition, which is what we're talking about in regard mm-hmm. to s- sort of sound before symbol. It's about how do people learn a language or how do babies let's let's talk about babies learning language they Mm -hmm. listen they listen and they listen some more and then they start garbling and burbling and ga 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 da 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 and they start forming words and they keep listening some more and they start copying and then they eventually put words together so in in musical context or musical language this would be improvising you know they kind of make things up for a while uh, and then eventually they'll form words and then those warms words will form sentences and musically we can sort of look at music, uh, musical phrases or patterns if you want to. And then eventually we will start to read and then we'll write. So the reading and writing is very much the end of the process of language acquisition. 
And the, the theory behind music learning theory is that why should music be any different? And in actual fact, that is the premise of many of these sound before symbol approaches, which is let's get the sound into students' heads. Let's have them listening. Let's have them audiating, which is to kind of mm. to hear music in their heads without music actually going on. Let's get them doing some of these activities we've been talking about with regard to singing and rhythm and tapping and, and chanting and reciting, all these things. Let's get that happening before we move to the reading phase because that is a much more natural way that people can pick up music uh, in a much more structured way. The challenge I had when I went deep into music learning theory was that it's, uh, it can get quite complex. There's a lot of words that Dr. Edwin Gordon created, <laughs> <laughs> audiation being one of them. But... Yeah, yeah, that's, that really took, uh, took everyone's imagination. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there have been people who have attempted to create a method based around music learning theory purely. Uh, and I tried them and I really wanted to like them, but they were just very, very difficult. They were too far out of the bounds of how you would normally teach to be practical, I found. And so mm. I wanted to use some of those, uh, the, the theory behind what the language acquisition model is teaching, but create activities that regular teachers, particularly teachers who'd been method book teachers for some years, activities that they could understand and feel confident using, whereas the, some of these other methods were just a step too far. They may have been the ideal music learning theory approach, but I couldn't see teachers, and I heard from other teachers who were also struggling. I was a relatively skilled teacher, I thought, with a fair pedagogical background, and I was struggling. So I thought, no, mm -hmm. we need to use some of these ideas but put them into language and activities that teachers can understand more easily yeah 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 yeah. so so by the way um people who are listening to the podcast uh, the, there will be show notes and in the show notes i'll put links to everything that we've been talking about uh, including the, the music learning theory and, and so on so ba you know basically people who listen to uh to the podcast and, and my youtube channel know that i i generally don't say i like something unless i really really like it i, I don't just come out with empty <laughs> platitudes but but your book is is excellent and and of course it's going to be excellent because anyone who's who's aware of of your work and your podcast know that you're so passionate about what you do especially with getting particularly teenagers and, and kids to enjoy to enjoy music and motivate them but you you've yeah, you've interviewed such a huge amount of the most important people in in education that of course this is going to be brilliant so you know i, I really recommend to people that, that they really need to check out your book particularly i think if they're teaching the six to eleven year old range but but do, do you want to actually just talk about it in some ways in which you you could adapt these for for older teenagers and and adults yeah, well, it's it's around, and thank you very much for what you've just said. By the way, That's re I'm really honoured by that. Um, it's it's really about reframing the concept. So, for example, um, there's a an activity in the book called uh, Frog and Snake, which has been a winner on my YouTube channel for many years. Everyone loves it. It's super easy, uh, but it's it's really designed for for that age group. And it involves sort of bouncing up and down the piano and then the, the, the teacher will chase them down the keys on, in, in a white <laughs> note scale as the snake. And something like that, you could 
play with a teenager and they will actually love it. It just you just mm. have to sort of frame it as hey, I'm, I've got this really cool game. I know like my younger kids really love it. Do you want to try it out just for a bit of fun? And if you frame it in the right way, they'll they'll enjoy it. And it's just like teenagers; they actually they actually don't mind stickers and things like that. You know, if you, <laughs> if you, if you present it the right way. Um, so and and f- for adult beginners as well, one of the things that I say and there's there's a chapter in the book devoted to what I call atypical beginners uh, and mm-hmm. teenagers and adults uh, in that category. I really encourage teachers to, well, number one, find out why teenagers and adults are learning and what they want to learn. What are their goals? Because that is critical that you help them achieve those goals and not Mm -hmm. your goals for them. Uh, Mm -hmm. Help them learn music that they want to learn and teach them about chords because they're all going to be listening to pop music, particularly the adults. They're going to know 80s tunes and maybe if they're older, 60s and 70s tunes, they're mm-hmm. going to want to play some of those. So help them. Help them understand pop chords. Uh, and I've got many resources and lots of free ones on my website for that. Uh, help them understand that and pop song pro- chord progressions. And then you can start introducing some of these, the beginner listening skills, the rhythm tapping skills, the playback skills. A lot of those ones will translate beautifully to teenagers. It's just some of the sort of the games and the improvisation activities that will need just reframing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah, th- thanks so much for being a guest. I, I, like I said, I'm completely honored <laughs> to, oh, to, to chat to you, you and have you on the show. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I do recommend to everyone absolutely check this book out. Not only check the book out, but obviously check out Tim's um, podcast if you've not come across it. And, and although I am a very guilty person who's a, a member of your website but never uses it, you should check that out as well. <laughs> absolutely. And I can give you all those links, but uh, topmusic.co slash book is going to be the best place to head to to find out more about this particular book. Excellent. All right. Thanks very much, Tim. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Bob. It's been an absolute pleasure. So I'd like to say hi to all the people who might be new to this podcast. I'm Bob Rose and I teach piano at all levels, uh, along with electric guitar and violin, with a special focus on the psychology of adult music learning. I integrate evidence-led approaches from sports psychology and other psychological disciplines with my experiences searching for peak performance uh, as a performer, which often has a lot of overlap with concepts from Buddhism and various forms of meditation. Since I was young, I've always been really fascinated by experimenting with different mind states and states of consciousness to learn musical instruments rapidly perform at my very best under pressure and connect deeply with audiences. Now, as a teacher, I'm passionate about showing my students how anybody can use these strategies and techniques that I've been systemizing in order to develop the kind of deep, effortless, natural musicality that prodigies have, for example, which is usually not considered teachable. So many of the episodes here on Heart of the Piano podcast discuss these fascinating topics and for those interested in exploring further uh, I've put together some recommended episodes in the show notes for this episode at www.heartofthepiano.com also I currently have openings for new online students on zoom I mostly teach grade five plus adults all the way up to the highest diploma levels but I do also teach beginners and I 
do play and teach jazz, pop and rock as well as classical. So you can check out my YouTube channel, which is also called Heart of the Piano, and there'll be a link in the show notes, where I have more conventional tutorials for a lot of exam pieces, for example, and these cover the much more traditional aspects of piano teaching rather than the psychological side. So, you know, covering more uh, how to interpret classical music, how to have good technique, all that kind of stuff. So anyway, thank you very much for tuning into this podcast uh, and, you know, do support the channel uh, as always if you can. Uh, Leave comments and I'll see you at the very next episode. So go off and do some practicing and I'll see you the next time. Goodbye.